Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. The option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. Does the president still have confidence in Secretary Esper? If he loses confidence in Secretary Esper, I'm sure you all will be the first to know. That first voice was that of Mark Esper, at the time U.S. Secretary of Defense and he was publicly disagreeing with President Trump on the appropriateness of using military troops to suppress domestic unrest. If you've been following the news, you know that Esper is now former Secretary of Defense, having recently been fired by Trump. Esper was not alone, as CNN reports that four senior civilian officials at the Pentagon were fired or resigned this week, replaced by individuals seen as loyal to Trump. What's going on here? As The Nation magazine asked, Is it mere spite or something more sinister? How worried should we be, and why? These are some of the questions that I recently discussed with Peter Margulies. Margulies is professor of law at Roger Williams University's School of Law. He's an expert on national security law, and as his web profile says, he, quote, focuses on the delicate balance between liberty, equality, and security in issues involving law and terrorism, end quote. Margulies and I recently discussed what developments already concern us, what could make us more concerned, and a bit about what might be far-fetched, as the country navigates a rather unusual presidential transition. We also discussed other issues, including how well President-elect Joe Biden is handling the transition, and finally, the Supreme Court. I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled, Tripwire. So, I like to play a game with my students uh, sometimes at the beginning of class where um, when they've done some reading, uh, we play what I call in a word, where I ask them, uh, in a word, how would you characterize uh, the readings? And so, my question for you is, in a word, how would you characterize the current presidential transition? I'll, I'll cheat a little bit. How about complicated? <laughs> okay. to say the least to say the least uh, i was thinking what my word would be uh unprecedented unprecedented uh, but i suppose that works too it could also be unprecedented uh, but, uh, <laughs> at, at any rate uh these are interesting times and one of the things that um has been true of many people is they would say that this transition is worrisome or worrying and i'm curious for you on a zero to ten scale where zero is everything's going to be just fine. And 10 is, 
I'm pretty sure something terrible is going to happen. What number would you give to describe your level of worry about the current presidential transition? I'll say right now it's a seven. It's a seven. So that's above the midpoint. Uh, and I was hoping that uh, a, a level-headed uh, law professor who's seen many conflicts come and go would talk me down, but you're up to a seven. Uh, tell me about some of the things that have you up that high. Well, what concerns me is the the element of sort of purging that I see in what President Trump has done in the past several days. Uh, that's something that rarely happens in this kind of interregnum, this transition period. Usually, presidents stand pat as they wait for the president-elect to take over. And sometimes cabinet officials will quit on their own to assume some job in the private sector. That's normal. But for people to be fired willy-nilly in this space is something I really can't recall. And particularly when that happens because of the president apparently trying to push his own agenda, then it becomes particularly disturbing. So I regularly listen to the Bulwark uh, podcast, and they recently, uh, the host Charlie Sykes had uh, David Priest on. And David Priest said that he thought that uh, the, he didn't use the term purging, but the purging or the firing of in his terms, a few civilian officials uh, at the Pentagon didn't actually worry him that much because he was confident that the uniformed personnel in DOD would not do anything dishonorable, would not follow any uh, illegal uh, command. Are you less sanguine, uh, say, about the firing of Mark Esper uh, than, than he is? What bothers me isn't just the firing of Esper, but the firing of a whole raft of top civilian officials and the replacement of those folks with people I consider to be far more unreliable or idiosyncratic in their views. Case in point, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who's going to take over the top defense policy spot. Uh, he said a number of things that are sort of out there. So uh, he said we need to have martial law at the border. Uh, wow. which, you know, tries to plug in criminal enforcement in a space where that's not really appropriate uh, and would probably uh, introduce some uh, international law issues and possibly constitutional law issues as well if you're shooting people on site just because they happen to cross the border. Uh, and he said a really a parade of things like that over the years. It does seem like Item one on his agenda is withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. And while I have some sympathy for the overall project of doing that, given the length, the unprecedented length of this conflict dating back to just after September 11, 2001, uh, I worry that a precipitous withdrawal now over the objections of senior military officials would put the new president at a marked disadvantage. It would signal to the Taliban that we are no longer engaged there. They would then overreach. And if President Biden then decided to reintroduce troops, that would be a much more burdensome and time-consuming and costly effort. Uh, and preempting a future president, you know, sabotaging the incoming president seems to be exactly what the outgoing president should not be doing. So... I want to talk more about those 
potential uh, sabotaging or at least destabilizing uh, effects in a moment. But I want to uh, go back to the idea of purges and firings. Um, I want to talk about Christopher Ray, uh, FBI director. Yep. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm concerned about uh, the rumors that uh, Trump has been looking to fire him. And I'm concerned perhaps for a fanciful reason, but when I think about something I read that said that uh, it, it was it was speaking of Biden's uh, the Biden campaign's uh, suggestion that if January twentieth comes and Trump refuses to leave the White House, the government is perfectly capable of escorting a trespasser out. And I saw something say that uh, the FBI and the Secret Service uh, would be the agencies most likely to to enforce that. Um, but if if Ray is replaced with someone at the FBI who is a loyalist to Trump, uh, I, that makes me worry about uh, that admittedly long shot possibility. But whether for that reason or others, I wonder if the firing of Christopher Ray would raise additional alarm bells for you. It, it would raise a very, very loud alarm bells, Michael. I have to say that that would be disturbing, not just for the reasons you mentioned, which are certainly disturbing enough in and of themselves, but it'd also be disturbing because it would tend to raise the specter of an out-of-control FBI being asked to, for example, uh, implement the uh, options laid out in Attorney General Barr's memo of some days ago and barging into Secretary of State's offices in particular states, and Secretary of State here, I mean the election officials in particular states, and trying to assume control over the ballot counting process. That would be a very dire development. I don't believe that will happen, but if you had a Trump loyalist in that spot as director of the FBI, it would be hard to completely rule it out. While I'm absolutely confident there's no way that Director Ray would do anything of this kind. So that would certainly be a very worrisome development. My hope is that even Republican senators would find that too much to stomach. Indeed, my hope is they've already told President Trump that they wouldn't be able to put up with that. But if it happens, that certainly would be a very grim development indeed. Well, if that happened, what could they do? Uh, they What they have to do is open their mouths, Michael and say, this has got to stop. It's enough. And what's gratifying, just to kind of try to dial this back a little bit, is that today, as, as you know, we've seen some promising things in that direction from Republican senators. So as you know, Senator Collins said today, picking up on the lead of Senator Langford from yesterday, that President-elect Biden needed to get security briefings. Yep. And a number of other senators echoed that. And that was, I think, a very welcome sign. Uh, Senator Graham said that as well. That was helpful because he even had some people who were pretty squarely in Trump's corner, like Lindsey Graham, who said, you know, we need to draw a line somewhere. It's just not responsible to deprive a president-elect of these briefings. Is, is that reassuring simply for, for lack of a better word, the symbolic implications, which suggests that there might still be some remnant of a spine within those Republicans? Or is it also reassuring in a substantive sense uh, in that it really matters that the president-elect is not getting daily briefings? 
I think it's both. Uh, I, I think it's probably the former most right now. That is the symbolic sense. And that's important in terms of our allies. That's in terms of just trying to develop a, a more civil discourse, which hopefully we can pivot to as we move to the, the presidency of uh, now Vice President Biden. Uh, so it's helpful in that regard. But I also think at some point, the incoming president needs to get those briefings. You don't want to have a break. You don't want to have some lapse or interruption. Uh, folks have said, I'm sure you've heard this, Michael, that the the break in the transition uh the, the aftermath of the 2000 election and the controversy there with the, the Florida count and the Supreme Court taking that case, that contributed to our being sort of off balance in developing national security information that potentially could have prevented 9-11. Yeah. That was a finding of the 9-11 Commission. Uh, so I take that very seriously, particularly because if you have some really irresponsible foreign actors out there, and there are some folks like that, they could be tempted to take advantage of this gap, and that would be a very distressing development. We've talked about some of the ways in which Trump's or the Trump administration's uh, refusal to support the transition, including not providing the daily briefings uh, to President-elect Biden. We've talked about some of the ways in which that can have a destabilizing um, effect. Uh, one of my questions is, what can Congress do to, uh, to address that issue? And it sounds as if at least part of it is, if this is the right word, uh, hortatory. That is, they can say, Mr. President, enough is enough. But uh, this is a president who I'm not sure is, uh, especially when he is convinced that uh, he's got nothing more to lose. I'm not sure that he's going to listen to words. Are there ways in which Congress can actually force the president's hand to, to force um, uh, him to be more supportive of the transition or in, or in other ways uh, counteract any of the destabilizing uh, impacts of Trump's actions? I think the most important things that they can do are symbolic, but I, I think symbols matter. Uh, I, I think it would be difficult to pass legislation at this point. Uh, and, you know, I think there, there are a lot of moving parts in doing that, although in theory, I suppose Congress could say there, there's a lower threshold for requiring briefings for the president-elect. And even if the General Services Administration hasn't certified the winner of the election yet, the president-elect would still be able to get briefings if, if that uh, president-elect status was verified by, you know, broadcast networks or other official, you know, uh, reliable sources of that type. So legislation would be possible. But I do believe that Trump, because he, he is a bit of a bully, frankly, like many bullies, will step back if people challenge him. And I think uh, for Republicans in the Senate to finally challenge this president would be so shocking that I do think it would provoke that kind of retreat from President Trump. Uh, so I'm gratified that that happened today with respect to the security briefings. And my hope is that we see more of that on other issues within the next week. 
And so I just want to make sure that we're explicit on this. Even though you began by saying that you're a 7 out of 10 in terms of worry about the transition, I'm not hearing you express a concern that you think that it's at all probable that on January 20th, Trump will, will refuse to leave the White House. No, I don't believe that will happen. Uh, what I'm more concerned about is the damage that could be done in the meantime. Yeah. So it's the purges, that element. So another example, very quickly, of that is uh, an official named Chris Krebs, who's currently head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency called CISA, part of the Department of Homeland Security. He's been a great uh, public servant for uh, many years. Uh, he's really helped protect our election security during this cycle. But he seems to be in the crosshairs. He, he believes he's in the crosshairs. He said he expects to be fired. That would be a shame because he's done a great job. And apparently, based on news reports, Trump is upset with him because uh, the his agency has uh, labeled as false uh, bizarre rumors out there that have been sort of uh, uh, stimulated by Trump allies, including the notion that some intelligence community uh, agency has a supercomputer super that is fooling with the ballot process. Mm-hmm. That's a bizarre rumor. There's no truth to it whatsoever. It's right out of science fiction. It's a conspiracy theory, Michael. Yeah. Uh, but because Chris Krebs and his colleagues have shot that down, he apparently is now in the process of being targeted by the president. And that would be a pity. Another official who has been in the crosshairs is CIA director Gina Haspel. If Gina Haspel, Haspel were, right. fi- were fired in the transition, what sorts of alarm bells, if any, would that raise for you? I would be concerned about that as well. I think Gina Haspel has been a very good CIA director. Her past is mixed in the sense that it appears that she had some role in the CIA torture program Mm -hmm. in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And for that reason, she was controversial with progressives uh, when she was first nominated. But I think it's fair to say she's done a good job. Uh, She's been reliable. She's been an impartial, neutral source of intelligence, which is what you want. Uh, And so I worry deeply about uh, another Trump loyalist being in that spot because the CIA can do a lot of good. It can be a great help to the president, but it can do some bad stuff too, uh, as was done, for example, in the old COINTELPRO days uh, in the, you know, the 50s and 60s, early 70s, where the CIA and amongst other agencies in the intelligence community investigated ordinary Americans and opponents of uh, administration or civil rights figures like Martin Luther King. We don't want to go back to those days, even for a couple of months. So replacing Haspel with a Trump loyalist would worry me too. The last official, and I I don't um, see this as someone who has been in the crosshairs. Uh, If anything, from what I've heard, this person is considered a loyalist, but correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it's uh, James Murray who heads up uh, the secret service. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've heard some have been critical of at least one decision that Murray made, which was to uh, authorize the secret services role in clearing the nonviolent protesters so that Trump could take his famous walk to uh, right. the St. The St. James uh, church. Right. Um, so I, I wonder, I guess, I guess my question is um, 
have you heard things that would suggest that that's indicative of Murray being um, uh, another Trump loyalist, or is that an unfair characterization of Murray? I I don't know enough about Murray to really opine on that. I, I think to the extent he was involved in that uh, disastrous decision to yeah. to clear the demonstrators, then that's certainly uh, a stain on his record. Uh, and you know, to the extent the military was involved in that, that is deeply troubling. Uh, I think, unfortunately, Esper did not do enough to try to address that before it happened. Uh, he expressed regret about it. I think that's what got him on Trump's bad side. So at least he learned from experience. So at the very least, I'd want someone to learn from that experience because it was a fiasco. Shifting gears just a bit, um, but still related to DOD, for years I've heard this story, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or if anyone's ever confirmed it, but I've heard the story of uh, James uh, Schlesinger, uh, who, uh, uh, while Nixon was president, told the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, not to obey any order from Nixon that didn't bear his signature. Um a, have you ever heard that that story has been confirmed? I'm sure you've heard of it, but have you heard that it's been confirmed? I've heard it? the story. I, I haven't heard reliable accounts that lead me to believe it 100%. It is the possible. Re- the most recent source I saw that described it, characterized it as uh, essentially uh, treason, but honorable treason. And again, I know this question is taking us into the land of the far-fetched, but um, especially uh, with uh, Trump having purged officials who are not loyalists. But if someone uh, in an effort to minimize destabilization tried to play that role, would you think that they could actually be prosecuted for treason? I'm not sure if treason would be the appropriate charge. Uh, Remember, treason is actually in the Constitution, and the Constitution imposes a very rigorous test for treason. Basically, it would involve... um, acting in concert with a foreign power like a Russia, say, or a China, like Benedict Arnold did with the British during the Revolutionary War. And then you have to have it proved by uh, at least two witnesses. So the, the framers were very wary of treason charges because they saw that being uh, wedged against them by yeah. the British themselves. Uh, so they put very strong protections on it. But there would be other charges that were certainly possible, sedition, uh, and the like. Um, I, I don't know that I see that happening, but what I do see here, because we, we've known about it for several years, is that if by any chance, I don't think this will happen, Trump decided to launch an illegal war, let's say to uh, uh, try to bomb Tehran, for example, mm-hmm. that the, uh, the, the general in charge of our nuclear arsenal has said he will not obey any legal order and an order for outright aggression, unprovoked aggression against any foreign state would be illegal under international law and under our law. So I'm gratified that in that sense, the military has, has recognized they have obligations not to comply with illegal orders. And I do believe the, the military would definitely uh, take that stance. So I, I think this will be my last uh, um, speculative question. And you've been very, very patient with me as I pose the, this series of hypotheticals. But uh, for me, as I was thinking about the various uh, purgings that would 
raise me to a nine or a 10. Um, Mark Milley, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs mm-hmm. of Staff. If, right. if, if, if Trump were to fire him, and I assume the president has the, the authority to fire the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs? Or he could order the Secretary of Defense to do that. So one way or another, he, he could do it. Yes. That, that would... That would that would alarm me. Would would that also be something that would sort of yep. ra- raise your temperature? <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, that would uh, be sort of uh, seven days in May in reverse. <laughs> you know, with the, the president uh, attempting a coup against his own established military. Of course, the president does have authority to fire the military, uh, as we know from Truman and MacArthur. But you want to do it for a good reason. You don't want to do it during a presidential transition. And so that would raise all kinds of alarms because Milley has been a responsible person. He was responsible in the wake of this disastrous uh, clearing of demonstrators in Washington over the summer. Uh, That, again, probably did land him on Trump's bad side. But he's been a, uh, you know, sort of a citadel of sobriety and responsibility. And it would be very, very upsetting and would be a matter of deep concern if he was removed. Moving at last from the hypothetical back to the actual as you look uh, at how President-elect Biden has comported himself since the media called him the winner, uh, and even in the face of Trump's uh, refusal to support the transition, I wonder, and you can translate it into a grade if you want to, but you don't have to, but I wonder uh, what your evaluation uh, is thus far of how Biden has handled himself. I would give Biden at least a nine out of 10 in terms of striking the right tone. You don't want to be too bellicose in this situation because you don't want to escalate the situation. Someone like Trump probably wants a fight right now. You don't want to give it to him. Uh, so that, that Biden has been very deliberate, cautious, uh, responsible. To me, that's, that's great. That's exactly the right tone. Uh, I think Ron Klain, the, the new chief of staff, newly uh, announced chief of staff for Biden, will do exactly the same thing. He also is a very careful, methodical person. And that's exactly the right approach right now. And one, one branch of government that we haven't spoken of, uh, which is ironic, given that you are a law professor, is the judicial branch. Uh, and I haven't asked any questions about that because my assumption has been that the Supreme Court is unlikely to play any substantial role, at least in this particular uh, transition. Would you agree with that or do you think I'm, I'm underestimating that likelihood? From what I've seen in the courts thus far, because the, the election suits filed by President Trump have gone nowhere, I would be surprised if the Supreme Court takes a case involving the election. And if they were to take it, I think that's unlikely. But if they were to take it, I'd be far more surprised if Trump won, because there's simply no evidence of significant vote fraud. Uh, and the margins in every state are such that, uh, you know, modest uh, mistakes here and there would do nothing to change the outcome. Well, shifting from the transition, but sticking with the court, when you pick up your crystal ball and uh, look to the future, I wonder if you have particular issues within national security law, immigration law, or civil liberties law that you're keeping your eyes on. Sure. Uh, so a couple of things, one of which is uh, 
the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA as it's called. You know, that was controversial in the Trump administration in part because it appeared there were mistakes made in a FISA request for 2016 foreign policy advisor to then candidate Trump, Carter Page. Uh, I think there were omissions in that request, and I think that's a problem. Uh, another piece of FISA is what's called 702, which allows the government to get a great deal of information from overseas without going to court and getting an individual court order for all that information. And even more importantly, allows the government to query that information for information about U.S. persons, citizens, lawful residents, people located in this country, without getting a court order. Uh, and that's actually being litigated now. So in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is in New York and Connecticut, there is a case called Hasbajrami, U.S. versus Hasbajrami, which raises the issue of whether this querying of U.S. person information you get under 702, and there's huge amount of information, there are millions of calls and emails that are part of that treasure trove of data, whether that would, whether that's a search under the Fourth Amendment, which bars unreasonable searches and seizures. And if so, if the government is acting reasonably in making sure any queries it makes are reasonably tailored to getting foreign intelligence information, uh, information about espionage, or sabotage, or attacks on the U.S., not information about political opponents or ordinary Americans. So that's the case I'm watching that will get back to the Second Circuit at some point and perhaps within two or three years get to the Supreme Court. And there, just for what it's worth in the Supreme Court, it would be very interesting if the court takes that kind of case because although it, it's fair to say the court is more conservative now with the addition of Justice Barrett, uh, there is also a libertarian strand in a number of justices, perhaps Barrett, certainly Justice Gorsuch, and that might contribute to some surprises in terms of how the court would view something like Section 702. The first time that we spoke, we were speaking about the potential appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the court. As we now have seen some of his jurisprudence emerge on the court, I wonder if you've been surprised by anything you've seen or if, if he's uh, made decisions on the court that are about what you would have expected. Uh, I have been, you know, pretty much, um, you know, I, I've seen what I thought I would see in the sense that I think Kavanaugh is a judge who looks at the law as written, uh, whether you're talking about the Constitution or a, a statute. Uh, and when there seems to be clear evidence for one outcome under a statute, he usually go with that outcome. Very case, case in point, a case called Nasrallah, immigration case where Kavanaugh wrote for the court and said that uh, courts could review findings of fact in cases involving the Convention Against Torture. And the government said there, no, you can't review, you can't touch those cases, uh, except for questions of law, not findings of fact, which would be, you know, is someone really going to be tortured? What evidence have they shown that they'll be at risk for torture? Uh, Kavanaugh said, and I think he was right, that the statute allowed that, they preserved that role for the courts. So that wasn't a particularly conservative result, but the, it's the one he found with a very careful analysis of the statute. And in a similar vein, in the recent ACA case on whether 
portions of the ACA like that on pre-existing conditions uh, were severable from the portion dealing with the mandate, which may be unconstitutional, Kavanaugh, again, I, very carefully signaled that he believed the court's jurisprudence, its precedents on severability were designed to allow Congress to have most of its handiwork survive, even if one piece of a statute was found unconstitutional. And that, too, is, I think, a very solid view uh, just of the law, regardless of Kavanaugh's particular view of the policy of the ACA, which is not relevant for a justice Supreme Court. And so I think it's very good that Kavanaugh appeared to be thinking that way, because that's certainly what the court's cases say. With the salience of Amy Coney Barrett's recent appointment to the court, I'm curious, I would imagine, um, in part because she hasn't been um, a judge for that long, and also she's not in the D.C. circuit, uh, I would imagine that she hasn't uh, decided on many cases involving national security law, but am I wrong about that? I think you're basically right, but uh, in cases she's done, I, I think it's sort of a mixed bag. So, for example, she upheld what's called the public charge rule, uh, which is a, a, a relatively draconian interpretation of a long-time uh, provision of the Immigration Act, which says if you're public charge, that is, if you're poor and you rely on government help, uh, you're not admissible into the United States. So there's that. That was perhaps a, a an ungenerous interpretation, although you could be on both sides of that issue. It's not slam dunk one way or another. There's another case, I'll tell you very, very, very quickly, involving who gets the fact-finding authority uh, for uh, deciding that you want to uh, close an immigration case. And that's a very important remedy to say to someone who's about to be deported, no, let's close this case and wait to see what happens if you have some other way of staying in the country, right? So for example, you might be about to marry a U.S. citizen for a completely bona fide reason. You love that person. Or you might have some other relief available because you are getting what's called a, a U visa, which means you've cooperated, you've been a victim of crimes, cooperated with law enforcement. And so what Barrett said is that an immigration judge had authority to close a case and allow that other kind of, of relief or remedy for the non-citizen to ripen, uh, which would allow that non-citizen to stay here. And Barrett said that even though the attorney general argued that immigration judges didn't have this power. Uh, and she did it, again, through looking at the statute, looking at the regulation through, you know, basically what any judge would do. It was independent of any political view of this case. But to me, it was heartening to see her do that because I think it was the right result if you just look impartially at the legal materials. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Peter Margulies for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on him and the issues we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see relevant links. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, if you are a Twitter user, you can mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a rating and or a review or to offer more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. To become a financial backer of Tatter, 
you can go to Patreon and sign up to become a patron. But be aware that if you are currently a student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your support. But for all others, come on in, the water's just fine. In any case, and as always, thanks for listening, and be well.